Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, I want to talk with you about something that is really, really important, and that is this, the difference between error and heresy. Now, you might wonder, why would we, why would we talk about this subject? It's because we are living in a time when, as we've talked about on this show many times, we're living in a time when many people are, even Christians, are not standing on the Bible. We're living in a time when there are many different Jesuses other than the Jesus revealed in the Bible being preached in the church, being different Jesuses are being published in books other than the one that is outlined in the Word of God and that has been taught from church history. And so understanding these things, the difference between error and heresy and standing on the Word of God is absolutely vital. Now, some people use heresy. It means, they, and by that they mean, uh, they suggest any error or a fairly serious error in theology. But heresy is used to describe those theological errors so serious that it would deprive one of salvation. We ought to be using heresy in that sense. Air is air. And air is serious. Now, air can even be small. Air is always bad. It's to be marked. It's to be avoided. But there are some air so huge that they really are cutting us off from God because we have so misunderstood him and his truth. And that's what heresy was classically used in the church and defined as. And so, to put this another way, error is those things that takes us away from biblical truth. Heresy is those things that take us not only away from the truth of the Bible, they take us away from what the church has taught as revealed in the councils, uh, specifically the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon. Or if you're Reformed, it takes you away from being confessionally minded uh, and in terms of the 1689 London Baptist or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg um, or the three forms of unity. But here's the thing. We're living in a time, as I just said at the outset, where false theology, where error is being perpetuated, where Christians are believing erroneous things. And we're, we're seeing this, as we've talked about on this show, with the rise of the Enneagram and, the, and yoga and we've talked about those things and the background of them in Eastern mysticism. And so many people are greatly confused about those things. But we're also seeing the rise of new ap- that new apostolic reformation, which we've recently been talking a great deal about. Um, if you haven't uh, listened to uh, the interview that I did with Richard Moore, uh, we're going to get into, we, he mentioned uh, the heir of Arius. We're going to get into that heir today. Uh, and so we're seeing, you know, things in our in the media, you know, on TV. And, and we need to be equipped as Christians to understand, yes, the difference between heir and the difference between heresy. And we need to understand very clearly what that is. And so that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. A tree, after all, has a root structure that supports the base and the weight of the tree. Inerrancy is a root structure and the base on which the doctrine of Scripture is built. God has given us special revelation, that is the 66 books of the Word of God, that via Scripture, and inspired His servants to record it in His Word. Christians want assurance that the Bible is a dependable source of revelation from and about God. The doctrine of inerrancy 
that is, the Bible is without error. It gives Christians the confidence that God's word is without error. It's reliable in all it teaches. Now, the inerrancy that I'm talking about here is total inerrancy, that the whole Bible is totally without error. It's not partial inerrancy. It is total inerrancy. This is the view that the church has taught. This is the view that the Bible itself teaches. If you would like more on that particular statement, I encourage you to pick up my book, The Word Matters. Uh, from It's published by G3 Ministries, G3 Press. I encourage you to pick that up because in that book, I outline the argument from Scripture and from the church church history about why we as Christians hold not only to the Bible being inerrant, but also infallible, that is, without the possibility of error, and that the Bible is sufficient, it's for our faith and for our godliness, and it's authoritative, meaning it's binding on our lives. Now, let's be clear about something. Inerrancy is a test for orthodoxy, but it's not a test for salvation. One can potentially deny inerrancy and be saved, but we need to ask the following questions. Are they being inconsistent in their beliefs? All salvific truths are found in the Bible, but how can one trust those salvific truths without inerrancy? What if the salvific statements are wrong? To be consistent in their beliefs, Christians should affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And so in this part of the show, we're going to see inerrancy as a test for orthodoxy as we view two beliefs held by the Mormon Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as church history's refutation of their beliefs. And then we're going to be able to determine our response to those arguments today from those who would claim the name of Christian while their doctrine is not rooted in inerrancy. Inerrancy of Scripture and its divine inspiration provide the contrast between true and false Christianity. They then reveal, if we don't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, there is no way to stand on what the Bible teaches about the person and the work of Jesus. And so the stakes are incredibly high on this. Now, the doctrine of both the Mormon Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses are littered with error and heresy. You might want me to point out more than I'm going to do in this episode, but stay with me. I'm going to not only show you why are the Mormon Church errs and where the Jehovah's Witnesses err, but where they are committing heresy that is not just outside of the Bible, that is outside of what the church has taught. And there's no way in this episode to cover every single thing about where the Mormons and where the Jehovah's Witnesses commit heresy. And yet there are two specific errors that they share that revolve around the Word of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ that I want to highlight for your attention in this episode. These two areas of doctrine are constantly under attack, and we would do well to examine these issues and to consider uh, you know, how Christians today should stand on the inerrant and authoritative scriptures to defend against those who falsely proclaim Christianity today. First, the Mormons. The Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS, it holds an unorthodox view of the Word of God, the Scriptures. Mormonism teaches that the Bible is correct only so far as it is correctly translated and is considered basically trustworthy according to them. Now, the Mormons have four standard works in their religion, the modified King James Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of Covenants, the Pearl of Great Christ, which includes the Book of Abraham, a burial instruction in ancient Egyptian having nothing to do with Abraham. The eighth article of faith in Mormonism states this, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is correctly translated. They further clarify that errors do appear in the original renders, from the original renderings from the Hebrew and the Greek. And the biggest issue is that within the delivery of the ancient text to the present day, they say 1 Nephi 13.28, one of their sacred documents, says many plain and precious things were taken away. So what they mean is, is that one way modern revelation helps to clarify and confirm the truths in the Bible is by restoring other truths that were lost. 
Now, none of these works, according to their official church doctrine, is considered without error and without the possibility of error. And now further, Mormons have an unorthodox view of Jesus. They do not hold that Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but rather they are three separate persons. And this is a warped view of the Trinity that leads to a flawed understanding of the work of the person of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The atonement of Jesus does not atone enough for the Mormon church. They believe that salvation comes not only by the work of Christ, but also by our work here on earth. It's not the purpose of this episode to describe all the errors found in the Mormon church. But I believe that addressing these two dissensions to the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God will bolster the Christian in defending the scriptures against these attacks today. Now let's talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. And they also, on the other hand, they hold unorthodox views of Christ and the Word. Jehovah's Witnesses officially teach this about the Bible. Only this organization functions for Jehovah's purpose and to his praise. And to it alone, God's sacred Word, the Bible, is not a sealed book. According to Watchtower, their official publication, they believe the following. The Bible is an organizational book and belongs to the Christian congregation as an organization, not to individuals, regardless of how sincerely they may believe that they can interpret the Bible. And for this reason, the Bible cannot be properly understood without Jehovah's visible organization in mind. The Jehovah's Witnesses are in great error as they proclaim that the Word of God is not complete and they interpret many facets of biblical truth as false. One example of this that you might know of is the Jehovah's Witnesses' view of the Bible in action is that the 144,000 can only 144,000 can be saved. That's a misinterpretation, though, of the book of Revelation chapter 7 and 14. And therefore, they officially teach this, that likewise, the great Moses, Jesus Christ, is not the mediator between Jehovah and all mankind. He is the mediator between his heavenly father, Jehovah God, and the nation of spiritual Israel, which is limited to only 144,000 members. They explain the exact number of the little flock approved by the father to be kingdom heirs was not known until Christ, through an angel, revealed it to be 144,000 who have been purchased from the earth. This little flock of 144,000 kingdom heirs, then, are those from among mankind who are born again, they say. In truth, however, the 144,000 refers not to the number of people saved, but to the Christians taken from the 12 tribes of Israel, commissioned by God to preach and teach the gospel, the song that they knew, according to Revelation 14.3. And not only is this a distorted understanding of Scripture— it also presents a distorted and even a false understanding of the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. And once in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness on the campus of Boise State University, I asked this man, what's your view of Jesus? And he responded, I don't believe in the corrupt Bible you believe in. I also don't believe that doctor matters. And his statement that he didn't believe in the corrupt Bible you believe in refers to his belief that the Protestant Bible is not clear or is not properly translated, which means to him it's not authoritative to him. And so only, according to him, the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible is clear. In fact, it's interesting, though, that this man is on, was on the campus of Boise State University spreading his doctrine. He was handing out leaflets. His own, so his own statement that doctrine doesn't matter doesn't work. And yet, because he's sitting there handing out leaflets, spreading his doctrine, doctrine is teaching. And so he's literally spreading his doctrine, and he doesn't know that he's doing it, apparently. The irony there. And yet, sadly, my experience with Jehovah's Witnesses is not the exception here. It's the norm. My experience with Mormons has been the same. They equally dismiss Orthodox view of the Bible. Now, we're not I'm not picking here on Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not picking on Mormons. We've talked to leading experts on Mormonism. We, we've had Michael Wilder uh, on. He was a former uh, Mormon missionary. Uh, we've had Eric Johnson on, who ministers to Mormons. I lived 
in uh, southern Idaho for 10 years. My wife was born and raised in southern Idaho. Specifically, that is the Boise, greater Boise area and whatnot. Uh, so I have a burden for Mormons. I have a burden uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses. I have spent many, to- much time studying Mormon and Jehovah Witness theology because I lived in the Boise area. And outside of Salt Lake, the Boise area is is one of the most uh, is one of the most uh, heavily populated Mormon populations in the world. And so this. This really matters to me. Speaking about this matters. Uh, and so my experience with them is not just secondary. Uh, I'm, my neighbors that lived around me when I lived in the Boise area for 10 years, they were Mormon. And so I know what Mormon theology believes and what it teaches. And we had many Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door uh, my wife and I's house when we lived in uh, the Boise area. And so, much like the Mormon church, we can say that Jehovah's Witnesses also have a deeply flawed understanding of the Lord Jesus and his work. And it's, it's far beyond the scope of this podcast to detail all the ways in which their understanding of Jesus Christ is incompatible with the truth of Scripture. We're going to take a closer look now at the same error made by Mormons, that Christ's atonement is not sufficient for salvation, and that works are required. And without a proper understanding of Christ and Scripture, they are sorely lacking salvation in Christ alone, which we're going to talk about today. And, and now we're going to go to the early church and, and uh, the church throughout history to better understand the fight for these truths that has already taken place from which we can learn to respond to the false religions of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. And because all scripture is God-breathed, it's useful, it's profitable, it's sufficient, it's authoritative, it's binding for Christians and for the church. As Paul instructed Timothy, so Christians today should make good use of scripture for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. In the early church, many questions were raised about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. As the gospel spread among the Greco-Roman civilization and beyond, the task of clarifying orthodox doctrine became more and more vital. And so as we consider the religions of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, we need to understand these are not new heresies. These are old heresies with their roots going back to the beginning of the church. Biblically-minded Christians have good biblical and historical reasons to reject the teaching of Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism because the church responded to their teaching at the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon. And so we're going to talk and give a, I'm going to give a brief glimpse to what the church, the early church and the councils in church history believed and fought to protect regarding the deity of Jesus Christ, as well as the inerrant authoritative word of God now. And while throughout the the first 300 years of the church, various heresies had come and gone, few, if any, of these heresies would cause significant issues like those of Arianism. Arius lived from 256 to 336 AD. He was a presbyter in the Alexandrian church. He argued that God is by nature essentially uncreated. He owes his existence to nothing else. And that being so, Arians... Uh, argued that the Son cannot be God because he owes his existence to something else, the Father. And if the Son was begotten by the Father, then there was a time when he did not exist, in which there's hardly uh, compatible with being God. However, how can there be two gods? Arius' belief centered on how the Son of God was not divine, but rather a creature, a mere created being, or an archangel. And this, of course, causes a conflict in the church because the church taught that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, as Paul explained in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Council of Nicaea was called to deal with issues raised by Arius' excommunication, and also to settle the meaning of what exactly was considered orthodox. 
also part of this council of Nicaea, uh, Athanasius, who lived from 295 to 373 AD. He was a bright and a dynamic leader of the Alexandrian church. He stood as a fierce defender of the orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith over and against Arianism. This man had a strong faith and a sharp mind, and his argument was based on the belief that the Father and the Son are one, as John 10.10 tells us. He is a key player in both defending the word and the deity of Jesus. Now, Athanasius argued that the divine will has nothing to do with the decision of the will. Jonathan Hill, uh, a Reformed uh, church historian, says this, It is the nature of the Father to beget the Son, just as it is in the nature of the Son to be begotten. This essentially means that, that the divine nature itself exists in this way, on the one hand, begetting, and on the other hand, begotten. Athanasius was heavily persecuted uh, for, uh, throughout his life for upholding the Trinity, but Christianity is indebted to his boldness and his work at the Council of Nicaea and the clarification and his, of his defense of the, of the Nicene Creed. In fact, at Nicaea, it was distinctly clarified what the church would believe, and Arius' views were soundly rejected. Inerrancy and the authority of Scripture became the foundation by which Christians were able to make clear distinctions between what was and what was not orthodox. And as the church began to form, more and more attacks came against it. And so the need to clarify precisely what Scripture was became more and more vital. And to determine what Scripture was, they used a test. First, the writer uh, had to have been with Christ during his earthly ministry. Second, they had to have been apostles, those who were believed to have been commissioned by Jesus himself. And therefore, three apostles, Peter, John, and Paul, were authorized to spread his teachings. And the standard of rooting uh, doctrine to Scripture that was authoritative inspired is one that would be foundational for the church in the years ahead. And yet, the argument for the deity and the divine nature of Jesus Christ had, had not reached its end with Nicaea. The Christological con controversy raged between two of the most influential churchmen of the East, Cyril of Alexandria 376 to 440 AD and Nestorius 386 to 450 AD, the patriarch of Constantinople. Dr. Justo Gonzalez writes, this debate primarily revolved around who Jesus was. Was he fully God and fully man or not? And now Nestorius insisted that Christ had two natures, while Cyril branded this belief in two Christ, said he only had one. And likewise, Dr. Hill writes again, the, the Western church stepped into the situation when Leo Bishop of Rome, who lived from 400 to 461 A.D., wrote a famous letter to Flavian known as the Tome, in which he approved of the condemnation of Eucytes. Leo spoke of the two natures of Christ, one divine and one human. He taught that even after the incarnation, Christ retains these two natures, but he remains a single person, identical with the second person of the Trinity. The, the, this Christological controversy was settled at the Council of Chalcedon. In 451 AD, Emperor Theodosius called this council into session, and the council approved of Bishop Leo's teaching from the Tome and put forward the Chalcedon Creed, an expansion of the Nicene Creed. Jonathan Hill says this, This creed agreed with Cyril that Christ was one person identical with the pre-existent Son. And still it also agreed with Leo that after the incarnation he possessed two distinct natures one human and one divine. And while we've only skimmed the surface of this, the work done to establish it in the church, both the deity and the divinity of Christ, the Son of God, this simply shows that these arguments that we're talking about today are not new. The Christian church has a long history of defending the truth of the identity and the work of Jesus Christ from the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says to young Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit, through the testimony of himself, recognized the Old Testament as authoritative. And later the church considered the whole of the New Testament completed and closed. The word breathed out in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it means that scripture owes its origin and its content to the divine breath of the Holy Spirit as found in many, many biblical passages. So, and so the human authors were guided and even directed by the Holy Spirit. So what they wrote is not only without error, it's also without the possibility of error. And it's for every area and every phase of our lives. 
And so the scriptures are supreme value for man because they're all the Lord wanted the word to be. The scriptures alone constitute the without error and without the possibility of error, rule of faith and practice for the people of God. Now, the word canon, it means to stand or to rule. The canon is a list of authoritative and inspired scripture. And in Protestant Christianity, the canon is the body of scripture that constitute the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 in the New. Athanasius was the first to recognize what is now this 27 letters in the New Testament. The first list, which has come down to us, of the 27 books, which embrace only those which appear in our New Testament, is in a letter written by Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, in the year 367 AD. Dr. Kenneth Scott LaTourette says this, It was not till after that date that uniform agreement on the list was found among all the teachers in the Catholic Church. By at least the end of the second century, a body of writings embracing a majority of the present 27 was being regarded in the Catholic Church as a New Testament and was being placed alongside the Jewish scriptures. And so in order for the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon to be able to tackle the discussions of the Trinity and Christology, uh, the personal work of Christ, the church had to come to a consensus regarding the contents of the canon and the close of it. The councils knew then, and we know now that their consensus on matters did not close the canon. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. However, in order to protect and defend the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, it was acknowledged and even solidified. And one of the men that, that who caused, I should say, the initiation of the church's effort to acknowledge widely the authority and the completion of the canon was Martian of Sinop, who lived from 85 to 160 AD. And now to Martian, the Old Testament God was not a God who chooses only a particular people because he's vindictive in punishing them. To Martian, Jehovah is a God of justice and arbitrary justice. Martian put the Old Testament aside in favor of the New Testament. Now, the parts that Martian didn't like, he simply changed. The only scripture recognized by Martian were the epistles of Paul and the Gospel of Luke. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses today are guilty of Martian's error because they retranslate or even add to the Bible to suit their theology rather than believing the Bible as a reliable, sufficient, authoritative, and trustworthy source for doctrine. And now as I think about it, I need to add the New Apostolic Reformation and Brian Simmons to that list because he also added to the Bible, he retranslated to suit his theology, and so Brian Simmons is also guilty of the error of Martian that is retranslating the Scripture to suit your theology. That is heresy, and heresy is to be called out. We have to call it like we see it. That's heresy as we've talked about. Now, it's outside of the scope of this episode today to even begin to unpack everything that I've said uh, about the entirety of the reasons to accuse both the Mormon and the Jehovah's Witnesses of, of false doctrine of heresy. But we have examined two grave errors in their religions have made regarding Jesus and the Word. And I've also briefly viewed a few of the actions taken in church history to prevent these heresies from entering Christian doctrine. And now in light of the clear and the sufficient and the authoritative and the binding word, what should be our response to the false sects claiming the name of Christianity? Now let's get and dive in specifically to what they believe. And when we consider, for example, the teaching of Mormonism, we learn how they believe that extra books are needed alongside the Bible to provide clarity for their beliefs. As Protestant Christians, we reject these teachings because the Bible provides a warning to not add to the books, add to the words or the meaning of Scripture, the now canonized 66 books of the Bible in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. And furthermore, as stated by the Westminster Assembly in 1646, we believe the clarity of Scripture entails those things which are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a, a sufficient understanding of them and what these two cults claim is true which is not found in the confines of the holy canon prevents them from rightly understanding salvation that is the heart of the matter 
Biblically rooted Christians reject the interpretation of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons because they believe differently about what constitutes the Bible, and thus about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, among a whole host of other topics that we could consider. And at the heart of both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism are different views of the Bible, and then thus how one can be saved. And in the case of Mormonism, the belief is that we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe similarly to the Mormons in that they state that salvation is by faith and what you can do. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses not only have the wrong view of the Bible, but they have the wrong view of the Lord Jesus and of the scriptures. And that results in them having a wrong view of the Bible and of Jesus. And at the center of scripture, we have to be honest, is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. We see Jesus himself in John 5, 39, saying that the scriptures testify me. In, in Luke uh, 24, uh, 27, Jesus is interpreting the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so these things matter. During the fourth century, Augustine was considered one of the church's great theologians. He still is. And he and Pelagius fought a battle over God's grace. Through Augustine, we have the Confessions of St. Augustine, a truly remarkable piece of literature that testifies to the grace of God in Christ. Now, the ar argument between Augustine and Pelagius was one as Dr. Truman identifies as one of sin, grace, and predestination. The central issue of the battle between these two men was the idea of freedom. To Pelagius, Christianity was a religion of merit, and thus man was ultimately responsible for his actions. Augustine's point was different because to him, grace now makes the fallen will free again by instilling a love for righteousness. Uh, therefore, without the proper belief and the understanding of the, gr the grace and the work of Jesus Christ as both fully God and fully man on our behalf, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are left with a warped view of salvation, which depends on their own works and not on, uh, not on faith alone by the grace of God in Christ alone. B.B. Warfield says this, In proportion, as a saving grace of God in Christ is obscured or even passes into the background. In that proportion, does Christianity slip from our grasp? Christianity is summed up in the phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world with himself. Where this great confusion is contradicted or even neglected, there is no Christianity. Dr. Warfield is correct. His statement regarding Orthodox confession of Christianity is helpful to highlight with abundant clarity the main differences between biblical Christianity, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormonism. And stating that salvation is by all that you can do in addition to Jesus' salvific work, as Mormonism teaches, or stating that salvation is by faith alone and all you can do, as Jehovah's Witnesses insist, that creates a different religion entirely other than biblical Christianity. That is because biblical Christianity is a revealed religion whereby God, as 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, has revealed himself in Christ alone. And in the incarnation, we need to be also say what we see is Jesus, fully God, fully man. He came on a rescue mission under the sentence of death to save sinners, Matthew 1.21 tells us. At the cross, Jesus says, it is finished in John 19.30. Now Jesus pleads the merits of his blood on behalf of sinners, and they are saved, as we see in Acts 16.31. And now ascended, Jesus serves as high priest over his people, living to serve as their advocate, as 1 John 2.1 says, an intercessor, as Hebrews 7.25 says. This is the holy, the divine Jesus, God the Son, revealed in the inerrant, infallible, living word of God. And neither Jehovah's Witnesses nor Mormons are Christians. Mormons have even in recent years tried to persuade people in ad campaign after ad campaign that they are Christian. But I'm telling you, if you ask a Mormon if they are Mormon or a Christian, they're going to tell you they're Mormon. Jehovah's Witnesses proclaim something similar. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are neither ortho have neither orthodox views of the Bible nor orthodox views of the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that our view of the Bible, as we talk on this show often, it matters. It matters because the clarity of Scripture teaches us that the Bible matters because it shows us the truth about God who has revealed himself as the great I am. Seven times in the Gospel of John, John shows how this is true by highlighting Jesus' I am statements seven times. 
In fact, the I am God of Exodus 3.14, we can say, is now the incarnate Son of God and the Son of Man. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they have the wrong view of the Bible and thus the wrong view of God and the person and the work of Jesus. Biblical Christianity grounds itself in the truth of all that Scripture teaches. Scripture is clear as the morning sunrise, testifying of the glory of Christ's incarnation and his return at the sunset of redemptive history. The grace of God is not something that we deserve, as Pelagius taught, nor is it something that we can do all that we can earn, as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both teach. Instead, we can say that when the grace of God is contradicted or neglected, there is no Christianity. Christ is all, and throughout the whole Bible, from the first words of Genesis 1 to the last words in Revelation 22, Christ is at the center. He is the centerpiece of the whole Bible. And so the whole purpose of Scripture is to teach and to proclaim God's whole counsel to his whole people. All of God's word in the Scripture were given by God himself and are therefore important and enough for believers. Dr. Wayne Grudem says God issues severe warnings to anyone who would take away even one word from what the Lord has said to his people. And so we cannot add to God's words or even take from them, he says, for all apart uh, are all are a part of his larger purpose in speaking to his people. Everything stated in scripture is there because God intends it to be there. God does not say anything unintentionally. And so we can say that all of scripture is reliable, it's sufficient. It's authoritative. It's trustworthy. That means that all of Scripture is to be studied, taught, proclaimed, and enjoyed by Christians so they can learn about God, His ways, and especially about the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The errant teachings of both Jehovah's Witness and the LDS Church, the Mormon Church, have been clearly dealt with throughout church history. We do not need to reinvent the wheel when answering or dealing with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Instead, what we need to do is we need to be faithful and understand and communicate that scriptures are not confusing with regard to the person and the work of Christ. The scriptures are clear and they are binding. And now inerrancy is not only an issue facing the Christian church, it's under attack from cults. Doctrine not only matters, unlike the man at Boise State University told me, it's essential. And Protestant Christians have significant and profound differences with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And central to those differences, as it pertains to this show today, is how we view the Bible as Protestant Christians. As Protestant Christians, we believe the whole Bible, the 66 books, canonized books, are the reliable, trustworthy, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. And so Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons don't believe this, and so they retranslate the Bible and modify it by adding to it or taking away. Inerrancy is not always a test, as I mentioned at the outset of this show, a test for salvation. However, their glaring, erroneous views of Jesus Christ and his work are a test for their salvation. And while repentance and a turn to the biblical and the true Christ found in the Word of God, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are dead in their trespasses and sins, meaning they are not Christian, they are not saved by the grace of God. We can stand on Scripture, which cannot fail, both to defend it and to show them and to teach them the truth of what Scripture says. Now, the charge of heresy, I understand, is a, is a serious one. We cannot be trivially about it or even frivolous in throwing around the term but Paul's response to the Judaizers, among other passages in Scripture, it teaches us that there are times when there are clear lines to draw, lines of separation, even among those who would call themselves Christians. If faithfulness requires that you do that, it's going to be important for you to ask the question, are you going to stand on the Word of God or not? If you believe a particular teaching warrants affirmative answer to that question, you need to make a clear case for why that's so. You can't just believe it because you think it or so. We have to test all things, as 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, with the Word of God. We have to test it, and we need to see, is, is it what the church has taught? And if it's not, then we abandon it, because it's not only error, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's heresy, it's outside of what the church has taught. And so at the end of such an exercise, it's important that we understand that we're, we're not saved by believing in sound doctrine per se, but by believing in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're indeed saved by faith alone and Christ alone, not merely by confessing faith alone. And nevertheless, uh, the moment we ask, saved by faith in what? 
we must respond with a doctrinal answer. We're not saved by believing sound doctrine, but the faith by which we are saved must of necessity be doctrinally sound. That is, the Christ that we believe is revealed in the inerrant, uh, infallible, sufficient, uh, clear, and binding Word of God. And there is no other way other to know God. There is no other way to know the character of God. There is no other way to know the person and work of Christ than as revealed in the Word. And so we need to understand that. We need to read and study texts like John 5.39 and Luke 24 to understand that idea. They, and, and those passages will take you uh, to other passages in the Psalms, in the, in the first five books of the Bible, and, and to the Old Testament prophets, and all throughout the whole Bible. You need to be, to, Alistair Begg is right, to be a whole Christian, you must have a whole Bible. That's what I'm saying here. You need to believe the Bible. You need to stand on the Word of God, the whole Word of God. The whole Word is for your good, Christian. We're living in a time when the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and those that we've talked about in the New Apostolic Reformation, they would have you believe that, believe their Bible. So believe the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible. Believe the Mormon translation of the Bible. Believe the Passion translation of the Bible. But the problem is, is when you have a wrong view of the Bible itself, you're never, ever going to translate the Bible correctly, period. End of discussion. We're going to talk um, this uh, later this year or here soon, Lord willing, depends. There's always so much to talk about. But eventually here soon, we're going to talk about the importance of picking a good translation. But I just want to say the best translations for you to read are the Legacy Standard Bible. These aren't in order, by the way. Read the Legacy Standard Bible. Read the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the New American Standard Version, the NASB, or the New King James Version. These are the best translations for you, the English translations. They will help you uh, to read and to learn more of God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to rightly handle the Word of God. So, see, behind, I, I remember in a conversation once, once with a guy on a bus in the Seattle area. This is about 20 years ago. I said, I, I'm in ministry. He asked me what I do. I'm in ministry. And he said, oh, okay. You know, good luck with that in, in your life because, you know, I'm from the Middle East, and in the Middle East, we just fight against the Bible. And But behind, we need to understand that man's statement was a question, an issue, that we can't know the Bible truthfully, that that we can't know that the Bible is reliable, that it's trustworthy, it's for our life, it's for our godliness, it's binding on our lives, it's, it's enough, it's clear. And then that understanding, which the church has always stood on, that understanding impacts the way that we are going to handle the Word of God. If I, if I believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, uh, binding uh, Word of God, then I'm going to aim to interpret it according to what the authors meant. I'm going to dig deep into the original languages. I'm going to aim to understand the context. I'm going to aim to understand the meaning of words in the text that I'm studying. And I'm, and I'm going to aim to understand what the author's purpose and intent means. And you might wonder, well, Dave, why does this matter? Well, on this show, we talk about these things all the time because they matter. They matter for not just the ivory tower, they matter for the average Christian. It matters what you believe about the Bible because what you do with the Bible, what you believe about the Bible, is going to affect how you're going to read the Bible, how you're going to interpret the Bible, how you're going to teach the Bible. And this matters. It matters at a street level because this affects how we're going to make disciples. So it's going to affect your view of discipleship. It's going to affect your view of evangelism. It's going to affect your view of engaging with the culture, whether you're going to cave to the culture or try win the, or, or multiple, multiple different things, or you're going to just speak the truth of take God's word and take the arguments that the culture is making, and you're going to speak to them from the word of God. It's going to affect your view of the church because you know what? It, every, everything, it, it all comes back to our view of the Bible. If you have a wrong view of the Bible, you're, going to have, you're not going to be able to rightly handle the word of God. And so these things really matter. And we're living in a time when somebody like George Barna in his latest worldview study says that 25% of Christians 
don't believe absolute truth in the Bible. And that's concerning because how else can you know God other than as he has revealed himself in the Word? How are you going to know the person and work of Christ? How are you going to know the character of God? How are you going to have a sound and a right understanding of the church and the church's mission? How are you going to engage the lost? How are you going to reach the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, and the person caught in error and heresy? How are you going to walk alongside a fellow church member? How, Pastor, how are you going to preach the truth of God's word to your people as, as 2 Timothy 4 tells you to preach the word in season and out of season? I mean, I could go on and on. We have to have a right view of the Bible. And sadly, today we are seeing many people who say that they believe in inerrancy. What they mean by that is they believe in partial inerrancy. And what that means, partial inerrancy means, is that the, only the part of the Bible that they like is inspired by God. And what we should believe and what the church has taught, following 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20-21, is the total inerrancy of God's Word. That is the view that... The scripture is the word of God. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's enough. It, it, it's God. It's got the means that God uses in a Romans 10, 17 way to open the eyes of sinners to repent and to believe and to put their trust and hope in Christ alone because there's no other way to know Christ than as he's revealed in his word. And that this is so important because the, the, the false Jesus of, of, of Jesus calling the false Jesus of Mormons and and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even then the false view of the New Apostolic Reformation. They want you to believe that the Bible is only correct, only inspired to the degree that they have translated it. That's not, an, that's not, that's not inspiration. That's not inerrancy. Partial inerrancy is no inerrancy. Inerrancy means that it means without error. That's what it means. And so partial uh, inerrancy doesn't work. Partial inerrancy doesn't work. It doesn't meet the litmus test of, of 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through 17 and 2 Peter 1.20-21. It doesn't meet the litmus test. When Jesus spoke and he says, it is written, he didn't have in mind in, in Matthew 4, he did not have in mind that the Bible was partially inspired. He had in mind that the whole Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and binding in our life. And that is why the following Jesus, following the apostles, and even Moses before him, and the prophets, and so on and so forth, the church has taught that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative word of God. We don't have to, and what this means, I want to be really clear about it, and to wrap it up, we're seeing all sorts of issues today false Jesuses being preached because people don't believe the right things about the Bible. You have Jesus calling, you have the chosen, you have all these things in our culture today. You have, you have the social woke gospel being promoted. And, but behind those views, you have to understand, is a belief about the Bible. That the Bible is not enough, that it's not what God means, it's not what God says that matters. It's what I think. It's what I feel that matters. That's the danger we're living in. That's why we're seeing the rise of the, the New Age and the New Apostolic Reformation and so much more, because behind these movements is the idea of theological liberalism with its putting the, our, our faith and the Bible at the same level. Actually, it's placing our feelings above the Bible, and that is dangerous but that's exactly what theological liberalism aimed to do. It aimed to place me and my feelings and what I think above what God has said. And not only, not only are you only never going to get the right answer coming from God, you're going to get a false God. You're going to get a false Jesus every single time when you do that. And so friends, arguments, evidence really matters. We as Christians, we have the whole word of God. And that's for, as Alistair Begg said, the whole Christian. And that's a good thing because we don't have to make up our answers. We have an, an authoritative and binding and clear and sufficient word that is reliable and trustworthy coming from God that is without error, without the possibility of error. And so we can trust it because Titus 1-2 says that, that, that God never lies. So we can take God at his word. We can believe him. We can trust him. And as we continue on uh, talking about these things, 
you know, in June, especially as we talk about uh, uh, biblical sexuality and gender roles and how they're under assault, this is going to become even more clear because the fault lines are becoming even more clear today. What you do with the Bible ultimately reveals what you believe about Jesus. This is this is why the stakes of standing on the Word of God really matters in our day, because there is no other way to know God other than as He's revealed Himself in the Word. So we must, brothers and sisters, we must stand on the Word without apology, without fear of man. You know, the fear of man, it has slayed its legions. Do not be afraid to stand on the Word of God. Do not be afraid to teach all that accords with what Scripture teaches and what it means. Because you believe, you believe that the right things about the Bible itself, that it is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and binding. And so you're going to teach it, you're going to herald it, and you're going to proclaim it without apology, without fear, speaking the truth in love, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That God, as Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25, might correct opponents with love and gentleness with his word and open eyes and ears to the truth of the gospel, the glorious gospel that is the power of God unto the salvation of sinners so that they might repent of believing wrong views of the Bible, wrong views about Jesus, and might come to a sound and a right understanding of the Bible and of Jesus. That's what we need in our day. We need to stand up. We need to use evidence. We need to use arguments and show why the Christian worldview, why the, the, the worldview of the Bible is superior to the worldviews being offered in our world today. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode. I, I know that it's a little longer than usual, but as always, I want to thank you for listening or watching. And until next Monday and Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.